0: My teaching anxiety dreams look different these days. In pre-pandemic times, I used to find myself standing at the front of a classroom demanding that my students write an essay about a poem only to discover that I hadn't prepped any copies, that no one has any paper, that I haven't even met these students before. In any way, it doesn't matter now because they're revolting, telling me that there's no way they're going to write anything. I yell at them uncharacteristically and say, oh yes, you will write this essay. And then they start to climb out the windows, fleeing my disastrously managed classroom. Now I just stare at a computer screen. Everyone is on Zoom, and they even have all their videos on. I ask them a question, but no one says anything. I rephrase and ask for a response. Someone clicks off their video. One by one, they all do so, until all I see are names printed across black rectangles. Someone types in the chat. This class is so stupid. I hate him. One of my favorite professors at Regis University had a phrase he'd break out when we'd read articles that shed light on an important issue but offered no solutions. He'd ask us, is this author admiring the problem or solving the problem? I don't want to do too much admiring. I want to solve problems but one thing I've learned about school leadership is that you have to understand the problem first before you can explore solutions. And if you are able to name and define the problem and everyone involved in the process actually agrees and whatever solution you negotiate and develop is broadly accepted by the staff, it can still take ages to feel like you've done anything substantive at all. In a way, the crisis facing education right now feels a little bit like a traumatic injury. It only takes a second to break a leg, but it takes months and months to heal and rehabilitate. In February 2020, the current state of education seemed largely inconceivable, but here we are, almost 11 months later, dreaming about some hazy day in the future when we can go back to work without wearing a mask. So let's start with the obvious. We're not out of the woods yet, pandemic-wise. Far from it. My district is set to be remote until February 1st, and as we approach that point, our leaders will be considering all the public health metrics that we're probably so familiar with by now. Case numbers, positivity ratings, hospital capacity, PPE stock. If case numbers steadily decrease in the last two weeks of January and the other numbers look favorable, we may move back to a hybrid model. So the very first question to ask then is, will we as a country finally turn the corner on this virus in the next six months? Will we be able to deliver enough vaccinations in that time? The writer, Anne Helen Peterson, captures my thoughts entirely accurately in a piece she recently wrote for NBC. She says, Like so many other Americans, my faith in our government's ability to successfully execute any plan in relation to the pandemic isn't just compromised. It's gone. On the federal, state, and local level, we've bungled testing and messaging. We've repeatedly privileged businesses over human life. Congress has failed to pass substantive, lasting relief for the millions of families who are suffering, experiencing food insecurity, or facing eviction. It's taken months for people to access unemployment benefits through an understaffed, labyrinthian system. Whether the fall of 2021 is our target to be back in the classroom or some point in the more distant future, we still have to talk constructively and critically about the awesome impact of that 18 month disruption to teaching and learning. How have teachers adapted their pedagogies and practices to the demands of remote learning? How will those changes influence the future of teaching? What have we learned about students' lives during the pandemic? Why are students so hard to get a hold of outside of the building? What have we learned about school and learning throughout this entire experience? What practices have we been engaging in all along that are actually harmful to students? What services have we been relying on schools to deliver that have suddenly been jeopardized? What has COVID broken in America's public schools? And what will happen to our schools in the future given the current and massive projected funding shortfalls? Some of these questions are difficult and maybe even impossible to answer, but we have to try. Districts and teachers were unprepared for this pandemic and it showed. We don't get to be unprepared again. This is Cole Harding who teaches high school math. He says we need to rethink some things that lots of teachers hold as sacred, their content.
1: There'll be some fascinating and potentially heated conversations I can imagine at the end of the year and at the, the beginning of, of um, like especially next fall about like what should go and stay curriculum wise or Delivery method wise, you know, if you're just direct instructing and it's not weird. I don't know, because I know some people are going to to write this year off as an anomaly if we end up back in the classroom next August and not make adjustments because of it. But we should look for things that, that, that it, as you said, it exposes that are wrong in the first place. These curriculum
0: conversations are good to have any time. And I'm actually glad the pandemic has forced our collective hand in that way. What we teach matters. So does how we teach. Some instructors have approached remote learning in the most basic and desperate of ways. They've taken all of the content they would have covered in person and made it accessible online. They've blasted their students with direct instruction on video conference apps and delivered mountains of notes and worksheets through learning management systems like Google Classroom. I realize I may sound negative when I talk about those folks, so I want to be clear. This is not an indictment of those teachers. I do think that a lot of districts set their employees up for failure by trying to maintain the schedules and structures of in-person learning when they moved remote. Some schools pushed on with eight period days to quench some thirst for normalcy. Some, like mine, modified their schedules but were hamstrung in terms of creativity by state mandates around continuous instruction and core subjects. I, for one, wanted to radically alter our schedule. One class in the morning and one in the afternoon create a block schedule with the potential for deep and extended learning in a limited number of subjects for four to six weeks at a time. But Colorado requires students to be enrolled in core subjects continuously. While the impacts of that kind of creative scheduling would be minimal for my subject area, imagine trying to produce a yearbook like that or develop an orchestra. So some teachers simply clung to what they knew. Others have been more innovative. Lots of teachers have flipped their classrooms, delivering self-paced mastery-based instruction through videos and tutorials and used their precious synchronous time for relationship building, discussions, and small group and one-on-one guidance. Jessica Post, a social studies teacher, thinks that the skills we've developed during remote learning can fill a useful niche in public school offerings.
2: I think remote learning like does actually work for some of our kids. You know and as much as i don't want to say i think we should have a remote option all the time i wonder how many people would you know not choose a charter school or not choose homeschooling or something if it was an option to stay at stanley lake but do school from home Um, and then like those older kids that have jobs and are going into family businesses and stuff like that like it does provide a really kind of cool opportunity for them to get their education, but also like do those things. And I, I say that with a hesitancy because I don't want that system or the expectation to be that we have to teach both remote and in-person in the same class period. Yes. But if, if I had like four sections of in-person kids and then one section of my world geography class was a remote, Thing and I just had to run a Zoom room and they were kind of in the same scheduled period, um, I would think that that would be a cool way to offer some more flexibility to students and families. Um, so that's, that's one thing I kind of hope we can come up with some sort of solution to pull some families back in that might be doing homeschooling or that traditional education just really isn't working for them. Yeah. Um, But again, I I say that with some hesitancy because I haven't been impressed with the distinction between those two platforms as they've been rolled out.
0: Cole also hopes that teachers will continue to take hard looks at themselves and be more
1: reflective in the future. I say this the right way teachers and humans in general we're not always super open to looking at our flaws um but in a year like this where we all sort of are it's like just right in our face like this is not working super well um we have like a vulnerability that i think a lot of us have shown to be like yeah i'm not doing well or or we aren't doing well as a school or as a class or whatever what can we do better i hope that stays because it's really healthy to like self-reflect and 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 break down and have like nitty gritty teaching conversations that in the past would have just been like, yeah, I taught the lesson. I don't know, did they learn it? Well, maybe, but like I taught it, I did fine. I was at the board, we did the stuff with the things. Now I think it's more healthy conversation. Um, that's good. It's exhausting to like right. build resources <laughs> and then just be like, I built this for two hours and it sucked, you know, that, that's exhausting. Yeah. Um, but healthy, if we, if we, that's where the MYP thing is so crucial. If we record how we're thinking and feeling at the ends of these things so that we don't go back and reinvent the wheel and think like, did we try this? Did it work? Like, no, we need to know if it works or not so that we don't spend excess time. Cole is talking about
0: the International Baccalaureate Middle Years Program, which is finding its feet at our school. The MYP is not a prescribed curriculum, but a conceptual framework. And at its core is the MYP unit planner, a tool that all teams throughout the school must use to plan their instruction. At the end of the planner is a reflection section, which almost everyone overlooks in the rush to get on to the next thing. Cole also hopes that our school, which ascribes to the professional learning community or PLC model of planning and teaching, continues to learn how to share resources among teachers, which arguably we should have been doing proficiently all along, but has really been kicked into high gear this year.
1: Another thing that we will have, we will do is, is share awesome resources. So I'll, I'm gonna teach a million different classes between now and the time I retire, but I shouldn't have to make videos for every single concept of, in all of those classes because if Andrew's made awesome videos, I should be able to steal some of his, and if Rachel makes some, I should be able to steal some of hers um, if, if they say things in a way that I think is conducive to how my students could hear them. Um, so yeah, a bank of video resources, totally a thing of the future in math classroom. Beyond just being reflective, Cole has found his teaching growing in other ways during the pandemic. Live formative assessment data is awesome. So, like having Google Forms where I'm seeing the answers pour in. I, you know, I I guess I did the sort of looking over the shoulder checks, which, as I've noted, I miss. But for a warm up, for actual data to see where they're at, it's way better to have the Google Form data just coming in live. Um, yeah, every math teacher agrees with that. Um, and then kids driving differentiation, like who to work with. And like I I've opened it up, especially my pre cal kids, and they choose quite often um just via chat, do they wanna work alone? Um, do they wanna work with a partner? Do they wanna work in a group? Do do they need some whole class examples? And they're like all very open and, and honest with themselves and with each other about like what their needs are on any given day. So of course I have times in my class where two or three kids are kind of at the board and we're going over one and you know, a few kids are alone, a few kids are working in groups. I think I'll be more intentional about that though. Instead of letting it happen organically, I might start to have some Google Forms where kids are like, that's their, part of their warmup every day is like, this is what you watched for a video last night. How, how do you need to be supported so that you're supported best today? Um, so I think just kids driving more stuff.
0: Yeah, you're right. Because we all, we all had this collective experience at the beginning of the year. Where we were like, oh my gosh, like nobody's participating in any class. What do we do? Which was like a terrible, but B did invite a lot more discussions about like, what does good engagement actually look like? Mm. Not just in this environment, but in general, which went back to a lot more student choice. Like we, yeah, yeah like we did, we did choice-based breakout rooms in my, in my classes today. And mm. it was like give us a one in the chat if you want to do this type of thing, give us a two if you want to do this type of thing. And then we pop around to the different breakout rooms and give some extra assistance. So yeah, I agree that even though it came out of a, like sort of a place of crisis, that has been a good, a good thing for teachers to keep in the back of their minds.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I think you, you fuse the two, like you bring them back in the room where they're like jazzed to be in the room and then you let them Pick who they want to work with or how they want to do stuff. Yeah, I just feel like it's like the when we can get back in the room to keep that. It's best of both worlds. We will have many more positive classes. You Just want you want a little bit of positive inertia to start your day every day. Positive momentum that could be a positive thing to start every day.
0: Something that I've struggled with consistently throughout 2020 is making connections with students and families who were determined to not attend the class. It frustrates me that I struggle with this too, because I tend to consider building relationships with folks a strength of mine. In a normal world, if a child misses a few classes, you can reasonably rely on the eventuality that the student will be back in the building at some point, and when you have that quasi-captive audience you can start conversations, structure interventions, and make plans for better attendance and behavior. But when there is no school building, the options are far more limited. Every week, my co-teacher and I call the parents of our absent students, and honestly, it's not even a case of diminishing returns. With some families, we've just never gained any traction. Some parents don't have valid phone numbers, others have full voicemail boxes, others say they'll talk to their kids but that they have to work during the day, or that their child is at a different house or wants to drop out and sees no point in doing online school, any number of things. We had 16 weeks of school this semester. When you factor in two class periods per week, plus the asynchronous Friday, for which we also took attendance, there were roughly 48 opportunities to, quote, attend class. One of my students missed 42. Several others logged into class only a handful of times and never completed a single assignment. We begged them to come to class, but we never could figure out what circumstances kept them away.
1: Like, school is a place to learn, um, but school is a place to, to be... And to become things, uh, and so I, I see, I see kids, link leaders, even man. I mean, who are our most for listeners listening? Link leaders are our most vivacious. Uh, uh, we have a very diverse group in there. They're motivated. They're a motivated group of kiddos. I even got link leaders that I teach in certain classes who are just like you can tell they're just, they're drained because it is it's all business. There is no there is no dressing up on on you know spirit i mean we had hybrid but there's you know when we're all online there's no dressing up for spirit week with the squad and letting that be the motivating factor for the day that you you at least get to go through your day and see your people um i mean you talk about business is business how about the kids My my wife will tell you she's like i was an a b and a few times c student in high school only so that I could wind up with a volleyball scholarship. I only needed a good enough GPA so that I could get onto a volleyball team in college that would accept me and not just think, hey, you're a good volleyball player. But what's with your 1.2 GPA? Like, it's the only reason she tried hard in school. And and for a lot of kiddos, I know um, that that sports or music or, or whatever their extracurricular thing is, is their thing. Um, when that goes away, yeah, school is, it's worse than a box to check. It's like a box that you don't want to be at. And you gotta check yeah i don't know it's bad again building that sense of community part of the sense of community is taking care of one another not having homies in the building one big disruption is like monitoring and supporting mental health and i know that you're a big part of that too you know uh yeah we we had a student we're not gonna share names we had a student uh both of us last semester that, that would regularly be in our room whatever like after school because she had had a rough day and stuff and like there are so many teachers in the building who like I have kids come see me that I haven't taught them in two or three years, but they just they just need to be heard. And they just need somebody to see that they're having a good day or see that they're having a bad day and and experience that and and process that with them. Kids aren't coming to my office hours to tell me about their good or bad days. I wish they were I I broadcast that but I don't know there's again some barrier about like you know, I don't want to bother Mr. Harding. I don't want to I, I'm not I don't want to log on to zoom to do it, it Could be that simple, right?
0: Yeah, or it just doesn't feel as real of a connection to like, I'm gonna go book an office hours appointment with Mr. Harding so that I can tell him that I'm not feeling very well versus like, I'm walking down the hall and his rooms open. So I'm just gonna pop in and see him. And then That's right. we talk about something else completely unrelated. And 20 minutes later, I are having a different conversation. So I think a lot of times those things just happen those connections happen organically and sometimes accidentally and it's it's hard to to plan those
1: yeah totally so that yeah it's just it's a lot of love missed out i mean i i always tell people that i i would do if i could describe what people get out of being at stanley lake as a as a staff member or a student it's like i was well, yeah i was a student now i'm a staff member it's all about love and it is. It's just missed missed opportunities to to love on one another and 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 build each other up. It feels like we're all just sort of flat and surviving. You know what I mean? Like we're yeah. we're we're having to make sure that we are taken care of. Like I don't know about you, but I know a lot of teachers, myself included, aren't paying mind to self care, getting enough sleep, you know, drink a lot of caffeine and stuff. So if I'm having trouble looking out for myself, how well am I? How well am I loving others or keeping that in mind? Um, I, I, yeah, that is that's a really sad and unfortunate part of this year another thing that goes hand in hand with that i it's partly the business of like the learning but also just like a safe and focused place to be i had no idea i don't know if you're learning too how many of my students live and and are functioning in what would i mean the politically incorrect way to say it would just be like a crazy household it's loud it's busy there's like a million siblings or or uh, the people that are in the house either can't be quiet if they're little tiny kids or, or aren't choosing to be quiet in mind that one of their students has has school um yes i never realized how quiet and focused and and secure this place was for them until i saw what was at home
0: yeah yeah some of it i'm sure i'm sure that some kids live in situations are not like that all the time like i had a, a student on zoom earlier this week who um, she just kept. I, I could see her on camera. She just kept doing other stuff, and, and so I sent her a chat message, and I was like, "Hey, like, is there another place that you can go do work?" And uh, and the student said, "Like, no, I have to be here to watch these five kids, and they're all trying to do their elementary school online work, and and I guess this student had a relative who normally takes care of the kids, but that particular day they they couldn't, so they had to be at this one kind of centralized family home." And there were two high school students that were managing these five elementary school students and also and they were all trying to do their own school work um and that's not an everyday thing for that kid but for some kids that is too because they live in a multi-generational family uh, a family home or um or any number of, of circumstances and yeah like There was a a guy on Twitter I saw like way back at the beginning of the pandemic in April that said, it turns out there's a reason that we have kids in classrooms during the day, which it's like, (laughs) yeah, because it's a space for learning, that's not a space for living that is now being used as a space for learning, which is just like such a huge obstacle
1: to overcome. Yeah, these things are not the same.
0: The pandemic has created new problems for public schools. The concept of the hybrid schedule, for instance. Never before, at least not this broadly, in the history of public education, do schools have to create structures for students to attend class both in-person and online. So that's new. But there are some problems that are not. My school has somewhere between 1,300 and 1,400 students. We have four counselors. The American School Counselor Association recommends that schools maintain a ratio of 250 students to each counselor. Obviously, we exceed that guideline, and in order to comply with it, we would need two more counselors. Technically, this year we do have an additional counseling interventionist, but in terms of counselors assigned a part of the Alpha range, we've got just the four. In a 10-year student-to-counselor trend report published by the ASCA in 2015, only three states in the entire U.S., New Hampshire, Vermont, and Wyoming, met the recommendation ratio. These numbers matter because counselors and mental health support personnel are important. Imagine building relationships with and being the primary emotional support person, at least on paper, for 350 children. You're also responsible for helping those 350 children choose the right classes, navigate post-secondary options, and generally make responsible life choices. Now imagine doing all of that remotely. My school is lucky because we also have a psychologist, Willow Mason, but she, like everyone else on the inside, is wary of how much work our society has left to schools without providing adequate funding or resources
3: these problems that we're seeing have always been problems and now we're just starting to notice how much of a problem they are um so I kind of am caught between like two perspectives here which is that either it's going to continue to be a bigger problem um, because of the financial constraints of the whole country of the whole world you know um or the hopeful optimistic side of me that I kind of have to keep holding on to partly because right. of the field I'm in um is You know, maybe this is going to expose the you know the extreme nature of those problems in a way that's actually going to help to you know channel a little bit more funding towards those things. I'm always hopeful that mental health is going to become a little bit higher on people's radar, Um, and it seems weird at this stage to be like trying to look for any kind of silver lining. Um, But if if that the outcome of all of this is that the you know the equity issues are highlighted. a little bit more clearly for people that maybe we will start to see some differences on the other, um, on the other side of this
0: I feel like as just sort of like having tangential glimpses into your role in your life in school that like I feel like my job as a teacher is impossible most of the time. I feel like your job is probably more impossible most of the time because you have tons of kids on your caseload and tons of kids you're providing services to. And counselors have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of children that they're responsible for uh, connecting with and knowing and nurturing. It seems wildly (laughs) incompatible with success. So, like, if we were to set ourselves up for more success, like, what would that even look like?
3: I think probably having another one of me (laughs) in a building the size that our building is would be good. I mean, that's kind of based loosely on what the national um, guidelines are from the National Association of School Psychologists. So they say typically to have like one psychologist per a thousand students would be, or or I think they say 750 to a thousand, give to a range there, but um, that would be ideal. So we're working at about half that. I've got um, way more students on my caseload than I can really serve effectively. And especially, you know, I feel terrible when I've got those kiddos who are clearly needing a lot more than what I can provide with the time I have available to me. So um, too often I'm having to, you know, say to families, well, here's a list of resources that I could provide for you if you, you know, feel like you want to investigate outside to support that kind of thing. And I, I don't really want to do that because a lot of times that's just another thing to add to their plate. Right. Um, I want to be able to be more of the full answer for them.
0: Yeah. It would be nice if you were like, I'm the resource instead of like, here's a list of resources you can pursue.
3: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, part of that is like me, I have to like be realistic with myself and like, I want to fix everything and that's not always going to be possible, but I think I could do more if I have, if I have more time and more resources available for sure. Yeah. Um, I'd also really like us to just in general, on the other side of this, like, I'd like us to stop waiting until students are really struggling and we're seeing them fail before we start to say hey what's going on and what support do you need, and I think that kind of goes hand in hand with the resources. I think you can't do that upfront preventative stuff if you don't have the resources to begin with, so I would love to be able to spend more of my time doing some of those universal interventions and really make sure that mental health is just more of a present thing in the school.
0: Jessica's observations about the role that schools are being asked to play, that of a social safety net, are similarly revealing.
2: Not only are kids like learning social skills and developing friendships that are, you know, possibly gonna last your entire life. I mean, I have friends that I met in high school and have memories from high school and all of that, but I mean, healthcare and food services and I think those are the two biggest ones I think that it's just been highlighted so brightly um, that we're not doing a good job at providing for our families in this country if they're so dependent for food and mental health services on this already completely underfunded and struggling system and that's what we've decided as society is like yes let's just have schools take care of that as well even though we're not asking teachers to become qualified therapists or you know i we just don't have the training to to be able to do any of that and it became very clear early on that we were responsible for the mental health of students and for their food and breakfast and i think when you look at other countries they don't have those issues with health care and food services that we have and so when schools shut down in other parts of the world they didn't struggle quite as much like our families did and uh you know family leave and paid time off and stuff like that we expected families to be able to magically put together a place for kids to do school and still go to work i don't know it just to me it felt like that was a huge thing that was just highlighted throughout this whole thing
0: Jennifer Berkshire and Jack Snyder recently published a book called A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door. It's a long-form exposé of sorts detailing the sometimes underhanded and sometimes overt attempts by American politicians to defund and privatize American public education. They write, The public has a broad and inclusive set of goals for the schools. They want young people to develop basic academic skills, certainly, but they also want them to develop critical thinking skills citizenship competencies and positive character traits. They want students to discover their talents and abilities, to engage deeply with literature and to explore the arts. And if that weren't enough, they want young people to be socially, emotionally, and physically healthy. That's a tall order. One that requires extensive programming and the resources to pay for it. Particularly if the goal is to reach all children, no matter their out of school circumstances. Even though it always feels like we're at an inflection point in American society, I really think that we are right now. We can either pay for educational services, or we cannot. We can serve schools so that they can serve the country's broader interests, or we can let them starve. We can pay taxes, or we can cut taxes. Such are the hazards of living in a plutocracy. In a 2017 speech delivered to a gathering of Silicon Valley magnates, Betsy DeVos said that her ideal as of then and as of yet uncreated educational system would protect and respect, quote, parents' fundamental right to choose what education is best suited for each of their children. She cited a blend of traditional, charter, private, virtual, and other delivery methods to get this done. She talked about the importance of innovation citing how nobody carries blockbuster cards anymore because we all use netflix the whole speech was full of weird virtue signaling about not wanting to leave kids behind because teachers want to quote protect the status quo and marked by convincing sounding but ultimately silly false equivalences like yeah we don't go to a brick and mortar store to rent tapes anymore But that doesn't mean that in the time between 1995 and 2020, children are all of a sudden capable of learning algebra in a week. It still takes focus and sustained effort to learn how to write, even though we can learn about paragraph structure on YouTube. Intellectual acts still take time to cultivate and perform. So ultimately, the innovation will save us crowd is often the same as the get more for your money crowd and the taxes are bad crowds. And none of these crowds are actually right about schools. What's more is that often those folks don't have a clue about the effects that economic inequality have on children who stream every day into our public schools. The pandemic's worsening effect on income inequality will almost certainly exacerbate those hardships and make it even more difficult for struggling families to pay their way to a better education, which is what DeVos would have us all do. Lest this rant get too partisan, here's a quick fact about plutocracy. The Quaker school the Obama girls went to, Sidwell Friends in Northwest DC, a year's tuition on the upper school will set you back at least $45,000. Back in reality, my assistant principal is worried that we're going to have to keep rostering students remotely into next year and beyond just to maintain our per pupil funding.
4: My fear is because we are a school funded that we're going to need as many bodies as we can to keep to something as traditional as we have going forward. And that that may impact or may have to have us work in this sort of remote environment going forward. If that's the case, we might be able to build structures and make it less awkward than we currently are and offer that with timelines that we could in fact pull. There's an educational piece that we can deliver and we can deliver in a reasonable chunk through this, albeit structured method that's not perfect and is not allowing us to do what we normally do in scope and sequence but I think we have greatly undervalued not thought about all the pieces of school that are the unwritten rules so the things that kids really enjoy whether it be the passing period whether it be the hangout time whether it be the assemblies that they all complain about, but secretly inside, are kind of important. Right. And they would recognize it. I think they'll recognize it more next year than they do in previous years because we haven't been able to do it. Yeah. So I think there there's so many pieces there about how do we fix that. And I think that the, as we're in this remote setting, teaching through a screen, it's really hardening the kids and decreasing the levels of participation, some of it from all those social structures, even though we try to do things to create engagement and kids talking amongst kids, they are, in my mind, really emotionally blunted based on what is happening and just not having the the full experience that you normally have in an American classroom, especially.
0: I don't want this podcast to turn into a bunch of magical thinking. As I said at the beginning, I don't want to just admire the problem. So to close, here are four threads that have emerged from everything I've read and every conversation I've had about this school year. First, relationships. As it turns out, they matter. Like they really, really matter. Famed English teacher Kelly Gallagher often says, Engagement first, then content, then rigor. Relationships have to come before that even. If we're serious about getting kids to learn, then we have to think hard about who they are and how we and the class connect to them. It seems obvious to me. It may seem obvious to you. But I really do wonder how many teachers view themselves as the gatekeepers of knowledge and just don't care about what their students think, about them, about their class, don't ever think twice about their students. That terrifies me. Deeply connected to that concept is the broader idea of engagement. We've had many conversations about getting kids to participate in class online, way more than we ever had before the pandemic. So what do these conversations look like post-pandemic? were everyone's classroom's magical little petri dishes of participation before. I'm worried that we're going to be like, okay, everything's normal again, so class is boring again. I'd hate for that to happen. Third, assessment. They're sometimes silly and sometimes great. It all depends on how we use them. We know this. Back in the spring, a whole bunch of standardized tests were cancelled, and guess what? Nothing terrible happened. We've created a toxic culture around assessment so that when we hear the word, our fur gets up. We think it means lost days of instruction and kids freaking out about irrelevant content. It doesn't have to be this way. Literally any time we ask a kid to do something to see what they know, we are assessing. And in an environment where we don't physically see our kids or we have inconsistent contact with them the moments that we do get work from them matter even more. Teachers have had to up their assessment game during the pandemic, and states have had to ratchet it down. I hope that both of those trends continue. In the podcast, Nice White Parents, which if you haven't listened to, you absolutely should, the host takes us through a segment in which she interviews folks who attended Brooklyn public schools in the 1970s and 80s. She asks them again and again if their school was good, or if the education they received there was adequate. Pretty much everyone just says, yeah, it was fine. We never thought about it. And that's because neighborhood schools were the default, which, yes, I know is also often the case in in this context because those particular Brooklyn families weren't super resourced, but also because no one was obsessing over test scores or STEM schools or the latest trend the way that we tend to now. So, bottom line, assessments are good and useful tools, and we should all, states, districts, and teachers, use them responsibly. And finally, communication. This has many levels. In the spring, our principal sent us daily messages through Google Classroom and have never felt more connected to him. In my most engaged Zoom classes, the virtual chat box is filled with kids joking, sending links, helping out, asking questions. I don't totally know what communication success looks like on a broader level right now because everyone is so saturated with digital content. My principal and our district leaders send out lots of emails and some get read and some don't. Many parents and teachers are overloaded and anxious, and it's easier to delete things than it is to read them. But the bigger question remains, how do we communicate with parents in meaningful ways? Is it a -a once-a-week bulletin? A Twitter feed? Regular updates to an attractive, accessible website that folks can opt into checking? Is it all of those things? If you made it this far, thanks for listening and stick around. There's one more episode coming down the pike in which we're going to talk about the future of funding, parenting during the pandemic, and generally cast an eye toward the spring, summer, and fall of 2021. I sure hope they're better.